Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. Uh, Today, I have uh, another very special guest um, who's joining me today from the um, National Institutes of Mental Health. Dr. Crystal Barksdale. Welcome, Crystal. Thank you for having me, Brian. I um, am very happy to be here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, Crystal is the Chief of Minority Mental Health uh, Research Program for NIMH. And so we're just going to talk a little bit about um, what is a definite crisis um, in the country, the African-American suicide rate. Um, during the pandemic has actually uh, increased. And so Chris is going to talk a little bit about that. Um, But uh, just in the way of a little bit of background, Crystal is responsible for um, guidance and expertise related to issues related to um, minority mental health and mental health disparities. So um, I think we probably be a great idea to start there. Um, just talking a little bit. Tell me a little bit, Crystal, about what you do at NIMH. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so right now I am, as you mentioned, the chief of uh, minority mental health, uh, and uh, in our office for disabilities research and workforce diversity. Um, and I'm actually also the acting acting, <clears throat> excuse me, deputy director for that office as well. Um, I recently kind of moved into that position. Um, and so in that office, we actually uh, kind of situate ourselves to uh, promote disabilities research and workforce diversity um, and really kind of collaborate with all of our uh, divisions, our funding divisions, our four funding divisions uh, to support and advocate for disparities research um, across uh, mental health science. And so it's kind of a, a big effort, um, mm-hmm. but really, uh, really an important effort because um, of the pervasive nature of disparities, um, mm. uh, not just across health, but obviously also across mental health. Mental um, health, and yes. So my focus, yeah, and so my focus is really um, kind of twofold in, in focusing on kind of health disparities, mental health disparities, but also uh, with it on minority uh, mental health issues as well. Mm-hmm. And so what I do is work with, um, with, work with our, our staff, work with uh, project officers and uh, scientific review officers, work with kind of staff across the institute um, and identifying uh, gaps and areas that uh, need attention, uh, mm-hmm. specifically with regard to minority mental health um, mm-hmm. and suicide in, mm-hmm. in one of those areas, particularly uh-huh. with regard to uh, youth and black youth. Um, is one of those emerging areas, as you know. 
Sure, sure. So, now, so that's, yeah. that's become a hot topic. Yeah, that's yeah, become a hot topic I, yeah. for me. No, absolutely. I can imagine. And, and you know, I, I've i long read about um, health disparities, and I think a lot of times uh, it's probably not just me, but a number of people also um, think about kind of just the physical health disparities. And we know that a lot of those have to do with uh, education, uh, and I'm talking about health education, um, but yeah. um, and and social economic status, um, and and but I've also been well aware for a number of years about the stigma that has been assigned to mental health uh, in the African American community. Um, is it so maybe without kind of projecting it can you tell me what what is it that um and it's a little more obvious in the um in the physical health uh category of what where some of those disparities come from meaning around uh, actual insurance and health care what what do you see as kind of major factors contributing to the disparities that emerge in mental health care. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, so when we think about mental health disparities and, and some of those kind of contributory factors, um, you know, social determinants, uh, kind of what you, what you started to mention, uh, some of the financial issues there, uh, insurance costs, uh, those those are certainly relevant um, as well mm-hmm. when we talk about mental health. When we talk about mental health disparities as well, um, mm-hmm. lack of access, right? Uh, lack of access to quality mental health care becomes uh, a huge issue with regards to contributory factors for mental mm-hmm. health disparities, mm-hmm. um, as well as stigma, right? So stigma is also a, a huge issue. Um, but there are also kind of cultural, culturally embedded factors, right? Um, issues around help-seeking norms and kind of preferences for care that play a role, um, mm-hmm. and and certainly issues. Um, around kind of our issues and kind of what we prefer and how we think about the need for treatment, how we think about uh, the need even for um, what it means to need treatment and seek treatment um, or even express uh, distress, right? So there are a number of kind of contributory factors uh, that play into uh, what it means uh, for disparities to kind of exist in a mental health uh, realm. And then we also kind of, it kind of ranges from not just kind of disparities in mental health care, right, but also disparities in mental health prevalence. Uh, So what we mean by that is kind of disparities in the the prevalence of certain mental health disorders. Um, So again, with regards to, and and suicide isn't necessarily a mental health disorder, but um, we also see differences or or disparities in in certain mental health uh, disorders as well. Um, sure. And so that becomes a factor. Um, and again, the, the contributors to that range um, in terms of um, uh, biases in diagnosis, um, and in terms of how we diagnose and, and kind of who diagnoses in terms of when people, again, seek treatment and how they're showing up uh, to care or in care um, to, again, how symptoms are expressed. Um, mm-hmm. And again, the, the idioms of distress. So, so it's a it's a multitude of, of factors, um, and again, we're we're we have a lot of research, but it's 
it's also there's a lot more that I think we need to understand and the complexity of factors. Um, sure. and, and the complexity of factors, I think, that still need to, to be under uh, understood with regard I, to um, how these factors kind of uh, come together. I see. I see. And so yeah. just to give just to give us a, um, a kind of perspective on this, um, what would you say? I don't know if you have any data, but what 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 are the numbers? What does it look like for? For um, let's start with the African American community as a whole. What what would you say about the percentage of of African Americans just generally that need care and are actually getting it? Um, just just kind of ballpark. Yeah. What are we talking about? Are are, are people just not uh, open to it, or and and to and to what extent is that a, an issue? So, so again, it kind of varies. So there are some estimates. Um, so research is mixed and kind of varies with regards to estimates. Um, okay. But let me talk about youth since we're kind of we've been talking kind of the, the focus here is youth. Um, mm-hmm. But for example, with regards to mental service care and mental, mental health service uh, utilization, for example, right? What we know. Um, and some research has suggested that as, as many as one-fifth, right, of youth, black youth, um, don't get the care that they need. Um, and so that's a pretty high number um, in terms of, of how many youth um, are not getting the, the kind of care that they need um, when, when it's needed. Um, and so, and, and that, that estimate, I mean, ranges, right, in terms of, sure. I mean, in terms of the samples, in terms of the research methodologies used, mm-hmm. ranges from one-fifth um, up to half in terms of the, the estimates, depending on samples and sampling, um, sampling approaches. And so, um, and, then it, and then it also varies based on kind of the, uh, the sector or, or where, where youth are actually receiving care. Um, and so, so just in terms of black youth, we know that um, black youth tend to underutilize mental health services, kind of formal mental health services. And when I say formal mental health services, I'm talking about kind of the typical outpatient types of uh, mental, health, uh, mental health care, uh-huh. um, especially when you compare them to uh, white youth. And right, so, I was going to ask that. Not yep. receiving, mm-hmm. Right. So compared to white youth, black youth tend to underutilize these formal mental health types of services, and they're not receiving care um, in those service sectors um, at the same rate. And so that becomes a problem and contributes to, especially when um, we think about kind of uh, what happens when a crisis occurs, uh, when, when they're needing treatment, when they're needing services. Um, so again, and your question about kind of the, the numbers is a, is a really poignant one, um, because it also points to how we're capturing data. Um, and as a researcher, um, this Mm -hmm. is often kind of a great pitch and a great time to pitch is kind of the need for more research, right? Sure. Uh, We do, we, this, we need more research and we need, um, we need more information and kind of more uh, standardized and reliable information to be able to to capture uh, kind of utilization patterns and to be able to capture uh, what's happening, um, particularly with black youth um, and kind of where they're going. 
I so, see. so it, it becomes it becomes an important point when we when we're talking about kind of the data, um, right. and especially on a on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so, you mentioned well well you mentioned that these that the the African American youth are uh, they generally underutilized. Where where are those points of service? Are they school clinics? Are they uh, other um, uh, community clinics that are yeah, so, not being accessed? Yeah. So, so, so points of service generally include kind of community-based clinics. Um, mm-hmm. So private, you know, private, so they can be kind of private, uh, private practices, private-based clinics. They can be community-oriented, community-based uh, clinics, outpatient types of care. Um, and then there also are school-based clinics and school-based mm-hmm. services. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> in fact, what we see is that um, in school-based services are actually a very rich resource, um, sure. especially for Black youth. And so yes, what yes. we find is that um, school-based services, and, and I use school-based services kind of in a, in a broad term, not just school-based mental health care, but school-based health care in general, general is actually sure. really is actually really promising um, in terms of providing services, both mental health and health care, uh, for, for our youth and especially for black youth um, because it, it can provide that rich opportunity for, for youth who um, may be underserved um, to get the care that they need in places where they otherwise might not be receiving it. Mm, um, so those points of service, so when you ask that kind of where children might, where children and youth might be receiving services, yeah, it could be their doctors, it could be a kind of primary care, it could be a community outpatient clinic, it could be a private care, you know, a private practitioner, a private mental health care facility. It could be the ED, right? So oftentimes um, individuals and children and youth are receiving care in the emergency department, um, yes. which also places a heavy burden on the system uh, because right. that's um, unfortunately sometimes the usual the usual source of care, which right. Um, right. which is can be again problematic because. Um, that's more crisis oriented, <clears throat> and so um, so again, the school based offering, the school based uh, school based service is actually quite promising. Um, but what we're finding is that there there's some disparities even there. <laughs> so even mm. in school based services, um, there there are some disparities, racial disparities. And when I when I talk about disparities, there's still even some underutilization among among racial groups. Um, even um, black youth, even in school-based services as well. Wow! Yes, yes. Wow, that's that's fascinating. That that would it, even even when the point of service is easily accept, accessible as being right. in say uh, the nurse's office or nearby, um, that it's still right. um, underutilized. Right. Now there's more utilization. So, so when we, when we look at some of the comparisons, right, sure. so some of the research suggests that there's more utilization. So some of the disparities, the, some of the disparities decrease uh, when sure. you look at kind of school-based compared to the community, community-based services, uh, the disparities decrease, but there still are those disparities. And so yes. that does point to kind of, again, your question about, well, what happens? Um, again, is it, 
kind of a preference issue? Is it, you know, what happens? And, and again, that, that, those are some of the excellent questions that we still, that still need to be researched in terms of, in terms of understanding the nature of disparities and, and particularly with regards to mental health service and services and healthcare. Um, Absolutely. It's kind of, you know, and again, a lot of it is, you know, kind of cultural values, cultural norms, um, but also just access um, and mm-hmm. availability. And so, um, you know, is it, you know, are there stigmas? And, and there are, and we know there are, but kind of the role that stigma plays. Mm-hmm. I see. I see. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, for those of you who have just joined us, I've uh, reached the Perkins platform, and our guest today is Dr. Crystal Barksdale, who is the Chief of Minority Mental Health Research Program for the National Institute of Mental Health. And so uh, we've been talking a little bit about uh, the uh, disparities in, in care among African-American um, youth and, and some uh, more general um, uh, care issues around uh, the different communities. Um, for those of you who may want to call in, uh, the number is 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. I see we have one caller. I'm going to go ahead and take that who's been waiting for um, a while. I'm going to take that caller uh, from 713 Area Code. Are you there? Caller? Yes, I'm here. Yes, go ahead with your question or comment. I just wanted to ask her, is she seeing anything regarding or <clears throat> let me see how to phrase this question. It seems as though because kids are housed in a house, um, prior to COVID, our kids wanted to be in the house. They were playing video games. But because they were forced to be in the house, it seems as though being forced in the house has caused some level of complications. Um, are you guys seeing anything uh, related to that being a cause of the rise or the spike in um, these thoughts of uh, suicide? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And unfortunately, <clears throat> so the data right now, uh, we don't have or are not aware of, at least at this point, kind of any any population-based data on rates or trends in suicide behavior, um, attempts or deaths during the pandemic as of yet. And so there's, there's some complications, right, with kind of the availability of suicide data, right? Number one, um, most suicide deaths occur kind of outside health facilities um, and do require some, some in, intensive investigation. And then there's also kind of a minimum of a six-month lag to see reliable suicide rate data and certainly that, that kind of is extended when we talk about any data related to attempts or even thoughts. So, um, so there's, there are delays with regard to the, the kind of the take home is that there are delays with regards to the data that we have available. Um, some of the initial data that we do have uh, comes from states and counties, um, and it's been a bit mixed. So it's just really difficult to say kind of what's happening right now with the suicide rate, um, and, and that includes kind of with regards to ideation or thoughts, um, ideation or kind of suicide thoughts and um, an attempt um, and kind of the impact that COVID 
uh, and the pandemic is having. Um, but we do know that there are certainly um, kind of exacerbations in terms of risk factors uh, that um, the pandemic might be having um, with regards to like isolation and uh, and kind of being cut off from peers and, and that type of uh, those types of uh, factors. So right. it, it certainly may be. Um, it's just kind of we're in a, a pattern of, of of kind of waiting for the data to to pan out and see. But it's a, it's a it's a great question, and and, and we're kind of hypothesizing and, and kind of waiting to see what the data will yield. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that, which actually le- leads me to a, another question I had is about those interventions. Um, I know that mm-hmm. you, you've done a lot of research on that um, and um, the, w- with the systems, but then uh, culturally appropriate mental health. Uh, interventions. Yeah. Um, so can you yeah. share a little bit about your work in that area? Yeah. So I, I'm, you know, a while ago I've, I've done intervention work and I've certainly uh, done my share of, of evaluating um, culturally appropriate interventions and, um, and certainly support and advocate for culturally and linguistically appropriate interventions. Um, and that's kind of the space that we're in and certainly in doing, in, in doing my work now. Um, is identifying kind of the gap and the need for more research um, in that area. Um, And what I can say, especially with regards to what we know now about uh, especially suicide and suicide prevention, um, is that there are are so many kind of unique factors uh, with regards to uh, suicide risk factors and protective factors um, that uh, that are accounted for and that kind of we need to account for that um, are, are may or may not necessarily be built in to uh, prevention efforts um, that we have so many questions. And so, you know, there are prevention, there are certainly a number of preventions uh, and prevention programs uh, that are successful and that, that do show um, effectiveness. Um, and so I think the question, the questions kind of are now is kind of how effective are they, are they um, for culturally diverse populations, especially, mm-hmm. again, for, um, for black youth, for, for black populations, for Latino, Latinx populations, for American Indian and Alaska Native populations, um, again, for, for those culturally, for LGBT, LGBTQ SGL, same gender loving populations and, and kind of the intersection thereof, right? So it's not mm-hmm. just kind of their unique pocket, um, but that's especially important is that, um, and is how these, how these subpopulations intersect. And so um, the long story short of that is kind of now we need more, I think, research to test kind of how and make sure that these interventions and prevention programs that we have um, and screening approaches that we have are um, are culturally relevant to our, our these subpopulations, um, and we're doing some work in that. For example, we have um, a school-based prevention program um, like the Good Behavior Game um, that's been shown to reduce risk. Um, uh, this is a classroom management approach that's been shown to reduce uh, risk factors that are associated. Uh, with suicide, uh, mm-hmm. suicidal behavior. So it's been shown mm-hmm. to reduce aggressive behavior, disruptive classroom behavior, um, and researchers have 
um, been doing a lot of work around using this program and using this prevention program um, in um, primarily um, black and African-American populations. And they're showing um, some success in not only um, kind of how this program is working to reduce these risk factors in these um, primarily African-American populations, but to how it's also reducing risk for suicidal behaviors. So this is the kind of work that we now need um, to show not, how, not just how these programs are working, um, but working with, uh, with our subpopulations, with these populations um, that we're now showing increased risk. And mm-hmm. so that's the kind of work we need. Um, another researcher, Yvonne <clears throat> Robinson, is doing a, a wonderful job at doing kind of culturally adapt- adaptations and um, in her work kind of adapting um, a, another school-based mm-hmm. uh, program. And actually, um, it's a school-based adaptation of a cognitive behavioral intervention. Oh, so okay. Cognitive okay. Behavioral, so cognitive behavioral therapy has been widely known and kind of widely shown to, to be effective at, again, certain risk factors and addressing certain risk factors, um, especially associated with mental illness, um, so depressive behaviors and depressive symptoms, especially. Um, and so her work is really focused on kind of um, doing cultural adaptations of um, a CBT or a culturally, um, excuse me, a cognitive behavioral intervention um, mm-hmm. that's focused on some of these risk factors and, um, and showing effects on suicide ideation. So sure, and this sure. is, um, again, with, with ninth grade, with, with black youth in particular. So uh-huh. this is the kind of work that we need. <clears throat> and again, yeah. I think this is, this is kind of exactly um, what shows and, and kind of is helpful in terms of the, the culturally appropriate kind of work um, that helps us to say, these are the interventions um, that we already have available, uh, but that also can be used with our populations, with subpopulations that are at risk. Sure, sure. And, and you know, it, it made me think as you talked about um, those, uh, those programs, um, I know that you also did some work uh, around that that had more to do with training and technical assistance for um, healthcare organizations. Are you involved in uh, training or technical assistance to schools, like maybe even school-based clinics? But that there's a there's a a great deal of of training that is needed. Uh, at the school level, whether teachers or school psychologists, are you uh, are there programs geared to help at the school level? I I I'm not I am currently not involved in any um, training and technical assistance, kind of personally. But again, uh-huh. I think <clears throat> um, certainly there are um, they may, there may be types of interventions that are aimed. At, um, that are focused on um, training staff um, to act as gatekeepers and, and focusing on gatekeeper types of models um, that, again, help equip uh, staff to be able to recognize um, the signs and symptoms um, and, again, doing so in an, in, in an appropriate manner, um, which I think is critical uh, because, again, or, you know, part, of, part of the issue is uh, who comes into contact with students and with children uh, most frequently. 
um, and again, not to increase the burden on staff and teachers, um, but to be able to help equip them um, and kind of give them some added tools uh, to be able to to be able to recognize children who are um, struggling. And so sure. this this becomes you know especially important um, as we're thinking about and as certainly as schools are starting to uh, move toward reopening. I see. Um, where where children have been, you know, where children have been away for so long um, and gotcha. kind of outside of, sorry, outside of uh, teachers' kind of direct um, in-person um, purview um, and kind of observation. So, sure. so yes, I think there, there are certainly programs um, that, that provide and promote a gatekeeper model. Um, and, again, I think those are just as, as critical um, as, as more programs that are focused on um, the children themselves. Right. Well, because I, yeah. I thought it's a it's a fairly natural connection because um, even the with talking about the physical health side, so much of the uh, physical health education that occurs at the school level and helps, you know, whether we're talking about going to the dentist or going to get regular checkups, get your eyes checked, get your ears checked. So much of that happens at the school that translates into the utilization of services outside of school. So it just seems like a very natural, very natural connection. Um, Yeah. And um, we have a, We have another caller uh, that has joined us um, from 919 area code. Caller, are you there? Yes, yes. My name is Lori Williams. I'm a school counselor and um, one of the local school systems here. And one of the questions I have for um, Dr. Broxdale is, um, do you foresee any residual COVID-induced risk factors? For students that are returning to school, and then um, how should districts prepare? And um, Lori, I think I heard your name correctly, Lori. Yeah, that's an excellent question. Yeah, um, yeah, it's an excellent question. It, so clinically, um, I think we we certainly have to be on alert um, with regards to the, the residuals uh, of, with regards to kind of the impact of COVID. Um, Again, while we certainly can't forecast uh, with regards to suicide and suicide rates of what will happen, um, we can, we know, uh, especially from surveys and and kind of indications of the impact that the pandemic is having on adults, uh, we know that there are, there are significant negative effects on um, the mental health, on, on adult mental health. So we know that there are negative impacts that the pandemic is having on individuals. And certainly um, it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that that, um, that the pandemic is having negative impacts on children and youth as well. Um, and again, that, it's, it's absolutely a, a, reasonable, uh, a reasonable conclusion. And so, and that's not going to end um, when, <laughs> when, you know, people are returning back to, school and we children are returning back to school. And so um so absolutely I I would expect that there are going to be residual effects that children are going to have to learn how to transition. Um mm-hmm. and, and again there there they're going to be those consequences of how do we transition and how can um we help with those transitions. Um 
the the great thing is that um, we are thinking about that. Um, we collectively, um, professionals in the field, are thinking about that and have thought about that collectively. And so, as schools, as districts, um, navigate the reopening process, um, and it's been a long process. Um, it certainly is. Uh, there are resources available. So, um, especially again with regard to suicide. Um, and thinking about how to help children um, manage uh, some of these difficult, uh, these difficult ideas and, and thoughts and feelings that they may experience or just the overwhelm, right? Um, so the Suicide Prevention Resource Center um, has a COVID-19 page, and it does include resources for schools, parents, and caregivers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mm-hmm. should also point out, that the National Association of School Psychologists has a COVID-19 page uh, with guidance about returning to school, um, as well as service delivery and special education information and crisis and mental health information and um, a section especially for families and educators. And then finally, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, has released guidance for not only how schools can safely reopen, but also recommendations for how to provide behavioral health and emotional support for children and adolescents um, and how we can attend to um, the mental health of staff, which I think is also important. So Mm -hmm. there are resources available. um, And I think it's it's important to kind of keep, I know there's there's many things that we need to keep in the forefront of our mind, but certainly um, thinking about, the, the mental well-being um, of, of everyone involved in these transitions is, is, is one of those, those things that we also need to keep in the forefront. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that question. Yes, thank you. Thank you, caller, for calling in on that. Um, and so, Crystal, as I, I told you, you know, I know that this was going to uh, go really fast. We're already out of time and, in fact, over yeah. time. And um, yeah. I really, really appreciate you um, taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, come and share with us. And um, and I know that um, the work definitely is is needed, and it did not fall on deaf ears uh, about what you said. Um, more research is needed in this area, and I, I hope that um, there that it will continue to be funded so that we can um, actually make a make an impact on on these numbers. So really appreciate yeah. you uh, joining us. And um, so for our listeners, um, just want to tell you a little bit about what we have coming up uh, next week. We have special three part series um, where we're going to start out next week um, with um, a the critically acclaimed manuscript by James Baldwin. Uh, we're going to do something for the first time, uh, a, a kind of book club with the fire next time, uh, followed by two conversations. Um, one is called The Talk, Why the Conversation Black Men Have with Their Boys is Necessary. And then um, the final broadcast in the series, Black Mothers, Black Daughters in American Society, um, where we're going to talk um, broadly about this, um, the talk that has to happen between um, uh, parents, uh, Black parents and their children about how to engage and how to be uh, members of society. Um, And so uh, a lot of this um, is impacted also 
um, with the mental health question. Um, it it mm-hmm. is something that um, we we have been dealing with for a number of years, and we're just going to try to shed some light about what has to happen, what's different, and what why some of these parents have to uh, prepare their uh, families, but particularly their children, uh, to go out into the world and be safe. Uh, but Crystal, again, it's been so. Um, such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, everything that you shared was um, right on time and very, very much needed. Um, so um, we hope, um, just ask you to keep up the good work and hope to have you. you have you back in the future. Until next time, yes. go well and stay well. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye.